Hello, my rebels. Today, I'm going to tell you about a curious case of New Brunswick, whose unemployment just shot up to 13.2%, and it's not done climbing. And yet, the Toronto Globe and Mail thinks this is the time to call for more cheap migrant laborers to be flown in from Mexico to pick apples there. It's so weird. I'll take you through the story. Hey, before I do, let me invite you to become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. It's eight bucks a month or 80 bucks a year. You get the video version of this show. Plus, you get other shows like Sheila Gunn Reads and David Menzies. Okay, you can get all of that at rebelnews.com, by the way. Here's the podcast. Tonight, why are political and media elites so dedicated to bringing in cheap foreign labor to replace Canadian workers? It's May 20th, and this is The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. simple question, as all the best questions are, why are political and media elites so dedicated to bringing in cheap foreign labor to replace Canadian workers here? Not all Canadian workers. I mean, heaven forbid we bring in cheap foreign labor to replace their jobs as journalists or politicians or lawyers. I don't know if you ever saw this campaign ad by Ted Cruz imagining if lawyers were hopping the border from Mexico, that would get the Democrats upset. But no, no, no. I'm talking about bringing in cheap labor to undercut our blue-collar workers. Like this story in the Globe and Mail this week, ban on temporary foreign workers in New Brunswick pressures food producers. Well, I certainly feel bad for food producers if they're feeling pressure. And I'm about as sympathetic to Mexican workers as you'd expect me to be, which is no more and no less sympathetic than I would be towards Bangladeshi workers or workers in Madagascar, which is I mean them no harm, and I wish them well, as much as I'd wish any of the world's seven billion people well, but they are not my problem. We have our own problems in Canada, and let me show you some of these problems. Here is the official labor statistics out of New Brunswick, Take a look there at a chart. Um, a year ago, unemployment in New Brunswick was 8%. Two months ago, in March, it was 8.8%. Not great. You can see that Canada was slowly sliding into a recession, especially in New Brunswick, where Trudeau killed a $15.7 billion construction project for the Energy East pipeline. That one pipeline would have literally given a job to every single unemployed man and woman in the entire province if they wanted it. Trudeau preferred OPEC oil, though. So unemployment was 8.8% in March. And then April, the last month for which we have statistics, it jumped by half, literally up 4.4 percentage points to 13.2% unemployment. That is shocking. And that's April. We're 20 days into May now. Things are surely worse. Do you doubt that when we have May's full numbers, they're going to be, what, 15, 16% unemployment? It's 16% unemployment right now in Newfoundland. Do you doubt they're going to hit 20% unemployment next month? When you have 20% unemployment, that is Great Depression, dirty 30s numbers. And Newfoundland was already an economic disaster. They literally wrote a letter to Justin Trudeau this spring saying they're bankrupt. Imagine them now. 
Okay, back to New Brunswick, because that's the big Globe and Mail story. 47,200 unemployed people in New Brunswick now. And remember the definition of that. That's someone who's actually looking for a job. That doesn't include people who've just given up and stopped looking for a job. They're no longer counted as part of the labor force. And look at that, too. The labor force participation rate has fallen by 5% in the past year. Do you, do you see that? So it's 13.2% unemployment amongst those who, who are still looking. But add in the 5% who has just given up. They've quit looking. You're almost at 20% right now if you include them. So back to that headline in the Globe and Mail. Before we even read the story, ban on temporary foreign workers in New Brunswick pressures food producers. Let me read a bit. George Dukeshire is a third-generation farmer who grows 24 varieties of apples, along with pears and plums, in his orchard alongside the St. John River in western New Brunswick. In half a century of farming, he's seen huge ups and downs. Now he's not sure how he'll weather the coming season, unquote. You see what they're doing? Third-generation farmer, apples and pears and plums, half a century on the land. We have to stand with this great, patriotic, hard-working Canadian salt of the earth, except for the following thousand words. They do the opposite. They use this one man's Canadianness to make the case for bringing in cheap foreign laborers to undercut Canadian workers. I'm serious. Let me read some more. Late last month, Premier Blaine Higgs abruptly announced that temporary foreign workers are banned from entry, the only province in Canada to place such a restriction, which occurred just as spring planting season was about to start. In an instant, a critical part of Mr. Dukesher's workforce evaporated, while in Mexico his long-term employees lost their livelihoods. He typically employs eight workers who return each year. One of them has been coming for 19 years, another for 12. They're experienced and work without supervision thinning the trees, pruning, making cider, and harvesting. Got it. So Canada's national newspaper, whose very logo is a maple leaf, is going to root for Mexican workers who live in Mexico and jet in to work for a bit before jetting back home to their home in Mexico. Not a word about New Brunswick's unemployed, but, and there's such a weird implication here, what New Brunswicker could possibly master the intricacies of, you know, pruning apple trees and, you know, picking apples without supervision. Quote, they know where every tree is on the farm, said Mr. Dukeshire, whose Archard Shade Farms is near Woodstock, New Brunswick. They're crucial, essential workers. They're part of the family, and you can't replace them with people off the street. <laughs> we depend on them, and they depend on us. Yeah, but that's the thing. They're not actually part of your family, are they, Mr. Dukeshire? If they were, they would be living in New Brunswick as citizens, and they'd probably have the protection of Canadian labor laws, including minimum wage, if appropriate. Or if there was a problem with minimum wages for farm work, maybe they'd be exempt from minimum wage, as some farms are, at least until the NDP runs the province. So yeah, that's the point, isn't it? They're not family. You treat family well. Family are living in your country. That's a metaphor he's using. They're not actually family. I'm not sure if it's accurate, and I don't think it's even honest. Hey, if picking apples is essential, and I'm not going to say it isn't, Mr. Dukeshire, why don't you ask the 13.2% of your fellow New Brunswickers if maybe they'd like to pick some apples for you? Apple picking is hard work, but it's also something that people like doing so much that across Canada, people actually pay 
to come to orchards for the pleasure of picking their own. It's not just that the fruit is a bit cheaper that way. It's good, honest, outdoors work. It's a bit of physical exercise, like this young lad said he wanted to do before he was laughed at by Trudeau's CBC state broadcaster. You would uh, see yourself doing in terms of volunteer work or, or one of the, the jobs that the Prime Minister was talking about? Honestly, uh, farming sounds quite uh, interesting. I do have a background in athletics. Yeah, I'll read some more. He cancelled a $10,000 apple tree order from nurseries in Ontario because of a lack of labor, a decision that will affect yields in the years to come. He said production could be reduced to about 25% of capacity this year as a result of the ban. He's not alone. Fruit and vegetable farmers, along with lobster processors who use temporary foreign workers, say New Brunswick's decision is catastrophic, people. And the move was made without consultation. Some farmers say this will result in lower production, less variety, and higher prices of local food. Catastrophic, guys. Hey, guys, if they don't get to fly in Mexican laborers, no one will be able to pick the apples. We just don't know how to pick apples. And lobster processing. <laughs> I mean, who knows better how to harvest lobsters in New Brunswick than, um, than Mexicans? I mean, certainly not New Brunswickers who have been working in fisheries for literally centuries. An industry built by their ancestors. What do they know? Yeah, we need to bring in world-famous Mexican lobster experts. They have secret skills that are just irreplaceable. It's a catastrophe. Look at this. In April, 11,000 such workers arrived, about 2,000 short of last year's numbers, and the Canadian Agricultural Human Resource Council says the sector is still facing challenges in getting enough workers, including foreign workers. Did you know they were still flying in cheap foreign laborers, even in the middle of this pandemic crisis? You bet they are. And did you know that many of them are actually bringing the virus with them? Take a look at this. Four temporary foreign workers in British Columbia test positive for COVID-19. Let me read a bit. British Columbia's top doctor says the province has detected four cases of COVID-19 among temporary foreign workers who entered the country in recent weeks. All four had arrived in BC on different flights, said Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry. The federal government has exempted TFWs from cross-border travel restrictions, setting their critical role in sectors of the economy such as agriculture. Migrant workers must still isolate for 14 days upon arrival in Canada. So they're obviously being treated by Canada's healthcare system. They're here now. Four different flights. That's a lot of spreading of the virus, isn't it? I thought we were clamping down on, on flying. I'm just kidding. You and I have to stay in our homes, but foreign apple pickers, front of the line, guys, come right on in. You're essential. You're not, but they are. So at least four more cases of the virus flown in. How much longer did those four cases make the rest of the province live under lock and key? One, one day, one week, one month? To save some corporate farm a few bucks a day in labor costs? And remember, Justin Trudeau announced a $50 million bonanza for temporary foreign workers. Trudeau, and by that I mean you, the taxpayer, will pay 50 million bucks to put up these foreign workers in a hotel for a couple weeks when they first arrive as a sort of quarantine. So you see, we're doing this to save money. Yeah. So we're halfway through this Globe and Mail story before we hear the countervailing opinion, not in the form of a quote or any sort of balance, but in a single sentence. New Brunswick's Mr. Higgs announced on April 28th that foreign workers are restricted from entering the province. 
He cited the risk of outbreaks of COVID-19 as a reason and urged employers to fill the vacant positions with students and unemployed local people. Yeah, how outrageous. What a bigot. Hiring unemployed students? Who are they compared to some Mexican citizen who's been coming up here for years to work for peanuts because we can't have Mr. Dukeshire paying prevailing wages? I even love the photo and the caption they use. Emilio Ramirez Agudo, seen here in Oaxaca in February 2020, works on Strawberry Hill Farm in New Brunswick each year. Okay, so he's in Oaxaca. That's, that's in Mexico. Of course, that's his home. Don't you feel sorry for him? I mean, to hell with New Brunswickers, those bigots. But how about this guy? Farmers and processors say they've tried that, and that even this year there have been few takers even if they do manage to hire, productivity rates tend to be lower and attrition higher among local, less experienced workers. On farms, reliable labor is particularly crucial during the key harvest months, just as students may be returning to school or workers called back to their former jobs. Yeah, do you think those excuses hold water now in the pandemic? School's not on. The former jobs are gone. How lazy a journalist do you have to be to be a stenographer for those excuses and not press the corporate farm to ask them, are any of those excuses afoot today? If they were even legitimate excuses in the past. Well, we can't hire local people. They don't want to work. They want to go back to their other jobs. Really? Don't lie. Don't lie. There's no school on right now. Let me skip ahead. New Brunswick has had zero new cases of COVID-19 in nearly two weeks, and everyone who had the coronavirus, the cause of the disease, has now recovered. That's incredible, isn't it? The Global Mail publishes that fact to imply that the province can handle it. It's not in crisis. No, 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 that's the whole point. It's not in crisis precisely because it has closed itself off. That's what Ontario and Quebec and BC would have been like had Trudeau and Theresa Tam closed those provinces off from flights too, from foreign flights, especially from China. There are no direct flights from China to New Brunswick, as there still are every day from China to Vancouver and China and Toronto. That's why New Brunswick is safe. Same with Prince Edward Island. The Globe goes on to a bit about how hard it is to train people to uh, pick apples. And then they get a real personal, a really personal case to humanize it. Not with any of the tens of thousands of poor New Brunswickers wondering how they were going to pay their rent now or make groceries. Globe doesn't really care about New Brunswickers. They're too busy caring for people across the world. Let me read. The impact stretches 5,000 kilometers away to Portrillo in central Mexico, where Victor Manuel Maguin Peña, a father of three who comes each year with his uncle, was counting on working at Mr. Livingston's Strawberry Hill Farm. The income helps to get ahead and to feed my family and provide supports for his children to study, he said. In Mexico, it is very difficult to survive. Now, I do feel bad for Mexico and Mexicans. I do. And I feel bad for people in Namibia and Tonga and Peru. But I am not from those places, and I don't want our laws made to cater to them. New Brunswick's job is to be a home for New Brunswickers, and its laws and policies should care for its own people. It was bizarre in the first place to bring in foreign cheap laborers to undermine their own people, but to do so now, when there is a health danger and 13.2% unemployment, that's downright immoral. Well, maybe they could find someone in Toronto, at the Globe, who supports Mexico over New Brunswick. Surprise! 
Health concerns can be addressed by proper checks and balances, said Erica de Ruggiero, director of the Center for Global Health at the Dalla Lana School of Public Health in Toronto. If federal and provincial guidelines are implemented and monitored and physical distancing and other protocols followed, if all those things are working in tandem, then I think the risks are being mitigated, she said. I think it's really unfortunate the workers who were expecting to come and the farmers who were expecting to have them come were left out. I think she's so right. But what about New Brunswickers who are being left out? I mean, if that's the business we're in, making people feel good about themselves, not making them feel left out of their own country. How about that? Look at this pure propaganda here. Mr. Dukeshire, the apple grower, said the decision to shut out laborers has made an already stressful situation even worse. These people are, being, are labeled wrong, he says. They're not migrant workers. They're not foreign workers. They're professional harvest workers. And they're professional farmers. We just can't do it without them. But they, they are, Mr. Dukeshire, in, in law and in fact, they are foreign workers. The, the program is actually called Temporary Foreign Workers. They are migrant workers. They migrate to Canada from Mexico. The globe's picture of the farmer was taken in Oaxaca, Mexico. Look, I, I know you like to save a few bucks, Mr. Dukeshire, and I know you put foreigners ahead of your neighbors. I, I get it. And I know you don't want to train your neighbors about the intricacies of picking apples. I don't know, you think they're too stupid or too lazy or too unreliable or something. Or maybe you just have come to like your Mexican laborers. You don't like them enough to help them to become citizens because, of course, that would mean you couldn't pay them cut rates that you can only pay foreigners. But you still love them. I mean, that's what you say. No, no, no. Loving someone because you can take economic advantage of them is not true love. It's you loving yourself, Mr. Dukeshire. I'm sorry, these farmers are a disgrace. And so is the Globe and Mail for defending them. Me? I have no will towards Mexico or Moldova or Montenegro. And I hope they have no ill will towards me. And neither would I expect those countries to put me or any other Canadian first in their national plans to recover from this pandemic and the economy that's being flattened. Stay with us for more. Welcome back. You know, when I was a kid, I thought I could stomp on a wasp's nest and run away quicker than the wasps could fly. Alas, I was stung seven times and I learned a lesson. Don't stomp on a wasp nest, a lesson that has kept me in good stead more than 40 years. I would put another thing in that same category. If you're a conservative party, don't sue Jim Carahalios. Just don't you're going to lose. And in fact, today, Jim Carahalios indeed won when he was thrown out unceremoniously by the Conservative Party of Canada in their leadership contest. Well, Jim sued and he won. And a court in Ontario ordered the party not to enforce its illegal disqualification of him. Here's what the court ruling looked like. Quite a lengthy uh, ruling, more than 50 pages. Um, let me read from Justice Perel reasons for decision. Before getting into the uh, civil law, the judge quotes from the Bible, and I just got to read it because it's classic. But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass 
that those who wish ye let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your side and shall vex you in the land wherein ye dwell. That's from the Bible. A prick in your eye and a thorn in your side. Well, I think both friends and foes of Jim Carahalios know that he can be a prickle bush, which is the reason he's so effective. And he won today, and Jim Carahalios joins us now via Skype. Jim, I'm not sure if that was a compliment or a criticism, but I think the judge is right. You do prickle, and if someone prickles you, you prickle them back, and you won today. Well, it was a victory, and I think it's more than a prickle. Uh, it's unfortunate in our legal system We've got to go to court because there's no uh, laws governing uh, whether or not a political party follows its own rules. And they disqualified me. And I've said from the beginning of this leadership, it shouldn't be up to a small group of people to remove candidates from the race. And then they did it to me and they didn't follow their own rules. They didn't want to talk to me about it. Uh, we wrote to them, National Council. They ignored it. They wanted to hold on to the fees, the campaign contributions, leaving me out of pocket, and we had to go to court. And um, uh, that's a decision they got. I think it's more than a prick or a thorn in their side. Um, and, you know, a 2-0 and in court here with political parties. And we've got challenges ahead, but uh, our team is reviewing the lengthy decision right now and taking it all in and looking at our options. Yeah, I, I skimmed it. It's over 50 pages long. Uh, it seems to me that the judge was focused on the unfairness of this tiny little committee of secret insiders. And I, I mean, I, I don't want to uh, unpack the ruling because I haven't considered it very carefully. But it seems to me that the judge basically said, we're not weighing in on whether or not Mr. Carahalios is a good candidate or not, or whether or not he can even be thrown out of the race. But the way it was done clearly broke the party's own rules. And as you said when we last had you on the show, it was a kind of contract. When you sign on to a leadership contest, there's rules, and it's the rules everyone has to play with. It's odd that the people who complained about you and the people who vetted you and threw you out, they're pretty much all lawyers and yet this judge says they broke the law. That's got to sting them. And you know what? It looks good on them to be put back in their place because I thought this whole thing was very undemocratic. Uh, it's a victory for the rule of law, Ezra. And uh, the bottom line is the unfortunate thing is a small handful of people make a decision not following their own rules. And it puts me in a position to access the contributions and have my name cleared as I've been marginalized from the top to go to court. And it looks like I'm suing my PC party, uh, my uh, Conservative Party of Canada, um, because of a handful of people not following their own rules, the party's rules. And uh, there are limitations when you go to court, Ezra. We, we had to sue on a breach of contract. They didn't follow their contract. But the upshot of it is that there's no access to go to court to review uh, a political party's decision uh, analyze the decision. So what's left standing is this CRO's Derek Vanstone's ruling, where he sanctioned me $100,000 for campaign communication. And that still sits uh, uh, as a valid sanction or as a live sanction, uh, even though I disagree with it, even though he didn't follow our party policy book. Uh, he had no uh, justifiable grounds to sanction me. He hasn't sanctioned any other candidate in this race for communications that were criticized in the media, just my own. 
And that means I got to raise $100,000 in the next 14 days uh, to get back on the ballot. And it puts me on an unfair playing field with the other four candidates in the race who have a $300,000 buy-in, who've had the party membership list for two months. I've never gotten the uh, party list of over 300,000 um, members to raise money off of, and I've got to raise $100,000 for a $400,000 buy-in in 14 days uh, because there's no access to go to the court and say, judicially review this CRO's uh, flawed decision to, to sanction me and fine me. Um, so that's still a live issue right now. The other thing that's still live is, um, uh, you know, the party hasn't emailed or called to hook up the donation link um, so people can contribute through the party into my campaign. I've been collecting campaigns directly into my campaign account. So I don't know what the what the pause is. They've had all day uh, to try to, uh, you know, uh, give me a fair shake. We're now down to 13 days left. Uh, so there's still hurdles uh, at the forefront to consider here, but it was a victory for the rule of law. And the one thing that you've covered in the last few years is uh, my wife and I have always fought for democratic principles and following the rules in a political party. And it just seems to me that there's always a, a handful of individuals who think they can just make up the rules as they go along. And I hope this sends a message to all political parties in Canada that they're not above the rule of law. Yeah, I mean, as you've made clear, you still are at a disadvantage. You don't have the party membership list. That's stunning to me. You still have to pay this capricious $100,000 fine for writing a mean email about your opponent, which is sort of uh, everything in the campaign is being a little bit mean to your opponent. Um, so it's still not even sure if the party is submitting and accepting the fact that they lost here. I, I can imagine they're furious with it. Um, my own two cents is that you should absolutely try to raise that hundred grand, even if it's an unacceptable fine. You should absolutely try to get on the ballot, even if it's an uphill fight, just because I think it would be wrong to send the message to this party or any other party that you can break the law, disqualify a candidate improperly, and get away with it. And I don't, I have my doubts that you could win against the machine politics of Peter McKay or Aaron O'Toole, I'll be very candid with you. I don't think you're going to win. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be mean. I like you. I like you a lot. I like your style. Well, don't bet against me, Ezra. Don't bet against me. I'm not. Oh, I'm not going to kick any more hornet's nests. And don't bet against Jim Carahalios. And I'm not putting you down. Please. I'm saying you've got to run because you've got to let the people vet you, not some party cabal. I want you on that ballot as a rebuke to their censorship and deplatforming. And if you win, good for you. Well, look, the cream always rises to the top in these situations. And we're reviewing the decision, looking at our options. But I got to have some way to get them the $100,000 when I raise it. There's about $30,000, uh, $20,000 stuck at uh, a postal outlet in Ottawa. They've never picked up the checks for two months. Um, they've got to hook up the link uh, so people can donate to my campaign to the party. Um, and so we're waiting to see what they're going to do in response to this decision to give me a fair shot to raise the hundred grand. And, um, you know, it, it is a heavy thing to think that there's a CRO who's applying the rules differently on my candidacy 
than the other candidates and what that means for the rest of the race. Uh, I like to uh, campaign on what I believe, and I don't like uh, people telling me um, uh, that are managing a race what's acceptable uh, uh, policy positions to take and what's not, especially when I'm in line with uh, our policy declaration. And the CRO right now in this race, because of the rules, is more powerful than Andrew Scheer. So when other candidates were criticized in the media, Andrew Scheer explicitly said, it's up to the members to decide. Well, this CRO believes that he has the right to levy sanctions uh, when he doesn't like your campaign communications, even if he can't cite a rule uh, that you've broken. And that's a concern for the rest of the race and if it's going to be a fair race the rest of the way. Well, I think there's already a stain on this race, and whoever wins it, if it's you, it'll be a miraculous comeback story. If it's McKay, that's one thing. And if it's O'Toole who wins this, he having been the tattletale that ran to mummy to get you disqualified, it's a huge asterisk next to his win. And it would suggest forever that there will be questions. Could he have won if he didn't disqualify you? He put you through this mess. He put you through this paces that he, he hobbled you. No doubt about that. But I think the worst part of it is it shows the character of someone who, instead of fighting you and knocking you out, if he's such a heavyweight, whines to the ref and, and, and sort of does one of those European soccer-style fake complaints. I don't know. I'm, I'm well, excited look, it, about it, this. It, Go ahead. Sorry. It, it, you know, we like to pretend that Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole are heavyweights in this race, and they haven't really showed heavyweight status. Aaron O'Toole's way of campaigning against me was to request my disqualification. Peter McKay said nothing when I was removed from the ballot. He said right. nothing. He's supposed to be the great unifier of this party. He thinks that's acceptable conduct. Right. Derek Sloan and Leslie Lewis eventually spoke up and said I should be on the ballot. So thank you to them. Uh, but these are not heavyweight candidates. I was in third place when I was removed. My average donations were higher than Aaron O'Toole's without the party lists. And I was on track to catch up to him in party donations if I had those 300,000 uh, emails that the other candidates have had. It was a miracle that we uh, made it to $300,000 without the uh, the same level playing field. So I think I was a threat. And my supporters and donors think we're on the right track. And we're going to have to see here in the next 13 days now left uh, what the party's going to do, if they're going to give me a fair shot to get to the 100000 uh, And my team's going to, you know, we're still deliberating. We just got the decision this morning. It was two months in court. Uh, when the other candidates have been campaigning. And, uh, you know, not surprisingly, we didn't get much uh, media coverage on it. But I'm thankful, uh, Ezra, that you covered this really important thing for the rule of law and democracy in our country. Well, I think you're right on that. And look, I'm not saying you can't win. In fact, this whole thing's been sort of a come-from-behind underdog story, and you had a huge David and Goliath moment today. So if I'm coming across as a pessimist, I'm, I don't mean to be, and I think you absolutely should run. I'm not a member of the Conservative Party of Canada. I will not be voting. But I think you, I mean, you've got a public spirit to you. You've got a public service uh, gene in you, obviously. I think you should let the Conservative members have a right to weigh in on this by putting your name on the ballot. And if you do pull off the upset of the decade, well, what a lesson that'll be to everyone who thought that disqualifying you was the way to stop you. I think you can do it. I think you can raise 100 grand in a week. I mean, you've, you've raised a staggering amount without the party list. I think democracy owes it to you being on the ballot. 
And I think it's the right thing to do to the whiners who tried to get you disqualified. That's my own view. I'm not a party member, and frankly, I found this whole race dispiriting. But I think you got to run, Jim. We just got to see if the party's going to play ball and start accepting my uh, contributions and uh, accept the court's decision. So it's a, it's a two-way thing. You can't run. The guys running the race, the guys and girls running in the race in the back are not playing ball, are not collecting the contributions, depositing them, uh, giving you the list. You can't run. Uh, so I hope they accept the decision today and uh, we're reviewing and, um, and we'll take it from there. Uh, Ezra, but I appreciate the coverage and I appreciate the support of the donors and the people out across Canada who sent their prayers and their thoughts and stuck uh, by our campaign for the last two months. And I do believe the best is yet to come for conservatism in Canada, for the rule of law and for democracy and the right for people to vote. Well, you know, I almost forgot about one thing until right now. I received an email from someone who is on the LEOC. What does that stand for? Leadership? Uh, what does that stand for again? the leadership executive organizing committee yeah it's such a jargon so i actually have a friend on there of the secret cabal and last time i had Good you on, for you. he wrote me an angry letter now i'm not going to say his name because you know he uh, it didn't seem like he expected me to public could i read a little bit of this to you and you can give me your thoughts i watched your interview with mr carahelios today and need to tell you how disappointed i was to see someone like yourself who i quite frankly have always had a lot of regards for I've always considered to be a journalist that would attempt to find both sides of a story, too. And lastly, if you are the conservative that you profess to be, why are you bent on helping the liberals? So this is a criticism of me. I also have always considered you to be someone who was instrumental in our conservative movement. So there's a lot of friendly praise, I think, backhanded compliments, maybe, from this Leoc board member. And then he says this. Jim Carahelios is constantly accusing the Red Tories of taking over the party. I am part of LEOC as well as part of the Appeal Committee, and you know that I am the furthest thing from a Red Tory. In closing, let me say that the very first time you and I spoke all those years ago, blah, 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 you did not have all the facts. Well, here, again, you don't, but have decided to run with one side. So, I wrote back to this fellow, and I'm not going to say his name. I said, it's nice to hear from you. I appreciate the fact that you feel comfortable communicating with me directly. I don't recall our conversation years ago. Feel free to remind me. But I'm interested in hearing the other side of the story here. This is, I wrote back to this fella who was apparently one of the guys who banned you. I said, I'm happy to talk with you via Skype or even read out a reply on the air if you prefer. But it is a TV medium, so I recommend that. I have seen the lengthy complaint against Carahelios, and it strikes me as a political disagreement. I just can't understand banning someone. That's my view as a matter of principle, as a matter of pragmatics. I think you're going to lose the court case, lose money, and serve up this internal bickering as a feast in the mainstream media, I wrote back. I said, if I'm wrong, I'm eager to have you or anyone else from your committee on to correct the record. How does 1.30 p.m. Eastern on Monday sound via Skype? I promise to give you 50% of the talk time and to give you the last word. Let me know, Ezra Levant. And I sent that to this critic of yours and of mine, and I didn't hear back. So it's a shame we don't have the other side of the story, but I wanted you to know and the world to know that I invited your critic and a defender of the party's decisions on the show. Never heard back. Uh, do you have any uh, reaction to what I just read to you? So he had a cup of coffee on his high horse for two months, whoever that was. But let me point out two things. Number one, if that individual was so confident in their decision and the CRO sanction, why didn't they come to court, put in an affidavit, offer themselves up as a witness, get cross-examined? 
because the CRO and the and the members of the DRAC didn't avail themselves to the court so they could be cross-examined and put forward their decisions. The LEOC didn't bring forward to the court evidence when we, requ we requested it of their internal deliberations. So they're hiding something. And we didn't have enough time in two months on a quick trial to compel them to bring everything forward. And I'm pretty confident if we got the full story as to why they removed me from the ballot, uh, it would shine a lot of light. Number two, they're talking about helping the liberals. We're watching our conservative party drive voters away to the PPC, to the Wexit movement, to uh, to people that say, I don't want to vote anymore. I've had it with uh, voting in, in Canada. And I'm here running, trying to unify conservatives from the West and, and bring back uh, disenfranchised conservatives who think that the party, some say corrupt, some say it's just not run by the rule of law and in line with our democratic processes. And I'm trying to unite that and stand up for the rule of law. And if it's anyone who's driving votes to the liberals and helping the opposition parties and helping Max Bernier and the PPC, it's this small cabal that likes to stay quiet behind the scenes and not let the members decide. If Andrew Scheer understands that it's up to the members to decide, why can't they figure it out? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's beyond me. So we'll see, Ezra. They got 13 days left. Are they going to open the donor portal? Are they going to go pick up the mail at the post office? Are they going to give me the party lists? Or are they going to continue to obstruct? I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. You know, what's so frustrating and what I tried to communicate to this gentleman in my reply was, look, you and I have just spent 20 minutes talking about these internal shenanigans, and you're throwing more jargon at me. I've already forgotten what LEOC stands for, and you used another word that sounded like drock. It's like, it's like cities in Games of Thrones yeah. or something. I don't even know. They're not even real words. Right. And instead of talking about Justin Trudeau and his pandemic response, Justin Trudeau and his approach to Taiwan versus China, Justin Trudeau flattening the economy. Instead of talking about real substantive matters and holding liberals account, we're, we're in this internal laundry washing. Uh, uh, and it's just so frustrating. And it was so predictable, just like me kicking that hornet's nest some 40 years ago. Jim, it's great to see. You. I hope you are on that ballot. And do come back and let us know how it all goes. We'll be watching. Thanks, Ezra. Oh, before, what's your website? JimCarhalios.ca. It's a long last name. Uh, but if you just Google Jim Carhalios, J-I-M-K-A-R-A-H-A-L-I-O-S, or Jim and Axe the Carbon Tax, my website will pop up. All right. They're kind of linked together. People can check it out. All right, nice to see you. Good luck. Keep fighting. Thanks, Ezra. There you have it, Jim Carhalios. Victorious in court today. His disqualification from the Conservative Party leadership contest thrown out by a judge who started with a biblical reference that just made me smile. I don't know if Jim's going to get back in. You heard there are still some technical difficulties. For the reasons I said earlier, I hope he does go back in. Let the people decide, as Preston would say. Let the people speak. Stay with us. Your letters to me next. Hey, welcome back on my monologue yesterday about sanctuary cities. Ron writes, left-wing sanctuary cities are sanctimonious, lawless cities. Yeah, sanctimonious is a good uh, use of that word. Um, I tell you one thing, and I just can't get that little clip of that Philadelphia mayor dancing out of my head. Here, let me just play that here for, to remind you. A sanctuary city, yeah. <laughs> Look at that. I, that. I found that so cringeworthy. 
I wonder if he would be dancing that way if it was someone from his life, his world, that was murdered, like Kate Steinley was murdered in California. He probably lives in some gated community, probably has private armed security paid for by the state. So, yeah, he's just doing it as a sop for votes. I find it very immoral, sanctuary cities. And I hate the use of the word, too. Chris writes, the over-controlling governments are overplaying this Wuhan virus. Nothing burger. They will encounter the boy who cried wolf scenario when the next viral or any other threat arises. Well, that's the thing. Some people will be very skeptical the next a crisis arises, they'll say, yeah, you got all your uh, models wrong the first time around. But I think too many Canadians have been stunned and reformed and conditioned to accepting abusive orders from the state. Just like after 9-11, we all said, okay, so we have to take off our shoes and take off our belts and be groped to go on airlines, and that's been 20 years, and it's the new normal. I think we've been conditioned to accept the government saying, stay at home, shut your business, don't go outside without a mask, don't meet your friends and family, don't go to church or synagogue, don't, you know, we've been conditioned. And I think too many Canadians have said, okay, so that's how it works now. On my interview with Gordon Chang, Jim writes, Trudeau won't stand with Hong Kong. He pledged his allegiance to the CCP. You're right, but I find it very interesting that so much of the world is standing with Taiwan, which is an independent country, and in fact, uh, just very, very early this morning, or yesterday, uh, uh, Taiwan time, I forget the time zones, uh, the president had her second inauguration. And she's at record popularity in her own country. And I think Taiwan has really risen to the occasion of, um, of this pandemic, being thoughtful and smart in its own defenses and helpful to other countries, including to Canada. The only face masks I would trust that are not made for sure in North America are from Taiwan. Well, folks, that's our show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, see you at home. Good night, and keep fighting for freedom.